Today, we're diving into a horrific tale, a tale of speculation and suspense that surrounds Brian Koberger, a man whose life took unexpected twists and turns, ultimately leading to a series of events that would grip the entire world. Before we dive into this story, let's make one thing clear. Brian Koberger has not been found guilty of any crime. And as we weave this narrative together, let's remember that he is innocent until proven otherwise. And his trial has not been set and is pending the date at the time of this recording. Let's start off by finding out who is Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger is a man who overcame adversity with remarkable achievements from being an overweight, bullied high school student to losing over 100 pounds his senior year and building confidence. He battled with drug abuse such as heroin to eventually turning his life around. Brian attended DeSales University, where he graduated in 2020 with a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in criminal justice in 2022. His journey led him to study under renowned forensic psychologist Dr. Catherine Ramslin, known for her work with the serial killer Dennis Rader, infamously known as BTK. Another one of Koberger's professors, Michelle Bolger, an associate professor at DeSales, described him as a great writer and a brilliant student. She also stated in her 10 years of teaching, she's only recommended two students to the Ph.D. program. While still attending DeSales University and preparing for his thesis, Brian Koberger created a Reddit survey to understand the emotions and psychological traits behind criminal decisions. The Reddit post was directed towards ex-cons. Koberger explained in the survey to the ex-cons the goal was to, quote, understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime. In particular, this study seems to understand the story behind your most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on your thoughts and feelings throughout the experience, end quote. Did this survey play a role? in Koberger's possible fantasy? Law enforcement seemed to think so, as the Reddit server was brought up in probable cause and used for reasons towards his arrest. As mentioned earlier, Koberger was recommended for the PhD uh, criminal justice program, and in April of 22, while still attending DeSales University, Koberger applies for an intern position at the Pullman Police Department. From what we understand, it is a requirement for the PhD program to complete the internship with the local PD. For an email that has been released on April 12, 2022, Koberger thanked Pullman Police Chief Gary Jenkins in regarding a meeting referencing a research assistantship for public service that Koberger had applied for. Probable cause affidavit states he had applied for the intern position in the fall of 2022. If he had applied in the fall, that tells us he wasn't chosen in the spring. For the PCA, a part of this fall application, Koberger wrote in his essay that he had an interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with better how to collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. A dig at local police, in my opinion, perhaps for not choosing him in the first place, showing he could hold a grudge. According to an NBC Dateline special, The Killings on King Road reported that the 28-year-old accused killer purchased a K-Bar knife and sheath online through Amazon in April 2022. The same month that we suspect Koberger was turned down for internship by the Pullman police. Could it all be a coincidence? We don't believe in coincidences. This wasn't the first time a law enforcement program did not accept or dismissed Koberger. We see in this article by the Idaho Statesman that Koberger was discharged from his law enforcement training program. High school, Brian Koberger kicked out of his law enforcement training program after a complaint was made about him stemming from an incident involving other students, according to a former administrator at the county's technical school. An ensuing investigation took place into the incident, which Tanya Carmela Beers labeled pretty serious in an interview with the Idaho Massacre podcast. She declined to elaborate because of federal family educational rights and Privacy Act protections, but the investigation led to Koberger's removal his sophomore year from the law enforcement focus at Monroe Career and Technical Institute, MCTI, in eastern Pennsylvania. She confirmed in a phone interview Tuesday with the Idaho Statesman. Carmela Beers, who oversaw the technical student 
uh, technical school student mental health and discipline reiterated that she could not divulge details of the incident. However, she said it was not drug or alcohol related, not violent in nature, nor did it involve academic integrity or cheating issues. She declined to identify the number of people involved, but said that the complaint about Koberger was not filed by a group of individuals. Podcast reported that the complaint involved female students, plural students. Koberger denied the allegation against him. Mella Beers added, He's, he was steadfast that he didn't do it, she told the statesman. Koberger then switched to heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Down, Camilla states, ultimately, we had him removed from the program. When I look back at it now, it makes sense. Carmela told the podcast, in light of the murder allegations, not knowing what I know, then, yeah, you'd be like, I can't. I'm so shocked. And in that respect, I am. But then I know another little piece, which is the piece that occurred in the school. And so then I'm like, oh, but I see that makes sense. What could it be? What could it be? It wasn't wasn't uh, drug related, violent in nature, and it was directed to students, female students. He possibly using his police or equipment from the school to maybe stalk or follow somebody. I think that probably makes the most sense, in my opinion. It had to have been an investigation and just remove people from programs just to remove them. Summer of 2022, Koberger made his cross-country move to Pullman, Washington. But life at Washington State University wasn't as smooth as he hoped. His brilliant academic reputation faltered as he struggled with his personal interactions. As a teaching assistant, he faced conflict with professors and fellow students. His transformation from high achiever to struggling individual was a stark contrast. What was the difference between DeSales and WSU? Perhaps because DeSales were mostly online schooling due to the pandemic, maybe because he was behind a computer screen, those red flags weren't noticed. Koberger's brief four-month stint as a teaching assistant, Koberger reportedly got into multiple altercations with one of the professors, Professor John Snyder. The ABC podcast, King Road Killings, indicated that Koberger was having problems with other PhD students as well, who described him as difficult and not easy to work with. Koberger was also described as a person who was easily angered and lashed out. He made a female student so uncomfortable to the point Students made sure Koberger wasn't left alone with that particular female student. The PhD students were so alarmed they began to document Koberger's actions towards the students and professors. For the ABC podcast, they called it the Brian Tally. See a timeline reported by News Nation of altercations and improvement plans very early throughout Koberger's short teaching assistant career. Remember, PCA indicated Koberger applied for internship with the Pullman Police Department during this time. Strongly suspect that there is some sort of background. And his documented behavior would not make Koberger a prime candidate for the internship program. In fact, check out the uh, the websites here. We have the uh, Pullman Police Department, and this is for just ride-alongs. For ride-alongs, this website indicates requirements, minimum age is 16, citizens' right application, and a successful background check. Now, if we go to the intern uh, program for WSU, it states that each intern must participate in a Selection process, which may include, but is not limited to, an oral interview, a physical agility test, reference check, criminal background investigation, and a meeting with the intern coordinator and or members of the Washington State Police University Police Department and or the intern program. Any criminal convictions before or after the entry program may be grounds for dismissal. Other criminal activities without conviction before or after the entry of the program may also be grounds for dismissal will be judged on a case-by-case situation. Now, we mentioned earlier that Brian Koberger had a drug abuse problem. Would that have been a reason for a police department there not to bring him on as an intern police officer? I think that's a pretty big indication. 
I think that have him being kicked out of the law enforcement program in high school, wonder if he admitted to having a drug abuse problem earlier on. I think those are all grounds for him not getting the internship program. In the fall, he denied the internship again. Was it because one that he had the heroin issue? But there's also a history of allegations going on at the university and documentation about his behavior. I said, I don't think that that would make him a prime candidate for the internship. I wonder, was he rejected again in the fall? Is that what started or maybe put into place what he had been planning? Brian Koberger's knowledge and expertise in criminal justice and psychology played a central role as he meticulously planned this horrific crime. Brian was described as many as the guy that had to be the smartest person in the room. We believe he expected his success from DeSales would continue on its upward trajectory and took it personal when things were not going his way. We mentioned earlier that he had an essay where he called law enforcement rule and that he had felt the need that he that they needed him to show them how to investigate and find modern technological evidence that a rural officer just couldn't comprehend. Was that the driving force behind his actions aimed at establishing himself as the most intelligent individual while simultaneously embarrassing local law enforcement for their decision not to hire him? Did his interactions as a teacher's assistant, which subsequently would lead to his dismissal, fuel this motive? And to commit a crime that would grab national attention while embarrassing local law enforcement would have to be big. Most cases that get high publicity, in my opinion, are when the victims are young and attractive. I don't think that was enough. He wanted, in my opinion, maybe the biggest unsolved crime ever. So it just couldn't be one victim. I believe he wanted multiple victims. That way, the case would gain more attention, which is why a new Range Rover parked up front didn't bother him as much as we would have thought. It was never about a single target. We believe that Koberger drove around one night and found the house with the biggest party whose residents were female. Forceman stated that this was a targeted event and that the house was a possible target. This is how that house could be the target. What you guys are going to say, Daniel, we had so many problems at WSU with the Pullman PD. Why not target a student that rejected him or embarrassed the Pullman Police Department? I mentioned Koberger has an extensive knowledge in criminal justice and investigative techniques, so he could not target someone that would lead back to him. He chose a nearby area so it, would, so it wouldn't come back to him. We also don't think he would have committed those red flags that are commonly made by ignorant criminals. For instance, we do not think Koberger would have followed any of the victims on social media or attempted to make contact with any of them as that would lead back to him. We do think he would have wanted to prepare himself as evident in the PCA, Koberger visited the area 12 different occasions. I believe he may have had some burner devices to do his planning and stalking. Rex Humerman avoided arrest for many years and used a burner phone to taunt his victims and his victims' families, allegedly. I think given Koberger's education in collecting and analyzing technological data, that he would not do any of his planning on his personal devices or internet that could be tracked to him. Faithful early morning hours of November 13, 2022, Brian Koberger alleged actions would rock the small college town and forever change the lives of Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapman, Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Bethany Funk, and Dylan Mortensen, and all those that love them. His moments that night are hauntingly detailed. For the PCA, at approximately 2.42 a.m., Koberger's phone reports he was at his apartment in Pullman, Washington. At approximately 2.47 a.m., Koberger's phone has left his residence and is traveling south through Pullman, Washington. At approximately 2.47 a.m., Koberger's phone stops reporting to the network, which is consistent with the phone being in an area without cell coverage, or that the 
connection to the network is disabled, such as airplane mode, or that the phone is turned off. There's corroborating WSU surveillance footage that shows a water Elantra with a front license plate missing, matching Koberger's vehicle on camera traveling north on, the, on Southeast Nevada Street at Northeast Stadium at approximately 2.44 a.m. Smelling nine minutes later at 2.53 a.m., the white sedan, which is consistent with the description of the white Elantra seen on camera earlier, is seen leaving and heading towards SR-270, which connects Pullman, Washington to Moscow, Idaho. Why was Koberger in that area for nine minutes? Park office isn't near, but in that area is Wi-Fi for WSU students and employees. He gone to this area with all the tools of the crime, including possible burner devices, especially since if this was the night that this was going to happen, he wouldn't need them after that morning. Went there with all his devices and his equipment, checked and stalked his victims to make sure they were home or not hosting or at a big party somewhere. Elantra at 2.53 a.m. was observed traveling southeast on Nevada Street towards SR-270. 22 King Road residence is approximately 16 minutes per GPS from that area. And we know the following morning, per the probable cause affidavit, went from his residence in Pullman to the area where the victim's residence was, and the trip only took Koberger 12 minutes. That would put Koberger in the area of the 1122 King Road residence between 3.09 a.m. and 3.13 a.m. The 22 King Road neighborhood was described by several neighbors as oddly quiet that night through the early morning hours of November 13th. Area is full of off-campus housing for college students and off-campus frat and sorority housing. And on November 12th was the Vandals' last homecoming game of the season. The local college students have a motto, win or lose, there's always booze. It's been anticipated that there was going to be a lot of parties that night. Burger isn't seen on video anywhere near the residence until after 3.26 a.m. On the 700 block of Indian Hills Drive, which is in the neighborhood east King Road neighborhood, traveling west from east of Moscow. Although Pullman is west of Moscow and, should, and he should be coming eastbound towards the victim's residence. We think this is done for a couple of reasons. Perhaps he went straight to the victim's residence, but saw the three underage drinkers stopped by the undercover officers in the banfield in front of 1112 King Road residence. Seeing them, he probably drove off and circled behind the police station, and, which is visible from Indian Hills Drive. Koberger did, in fact, see the officers stopped out there in the banfield with the three juveniles. I would suspect that he would have driven off. Now, the 700 block of Indian Hills Drive is located right behind the Moscow Police Department. I speculate that maybe perhaps he drove back there and waited to see for the undercover officers to return. Another logical explanation is Cobra drove around knowing police would attempt to trace back surveillance footage of the car that would most likely be seen on surveillance cameras around the time of the murders. And in efforts to elude that investigation, he purposely made it look like the vehicle was coming from the wrong direction to, to mislead investigators. The question we find ourselves asking is, are you aware of the task force being done that night? Is that the reason why he chose that specific night? Because he knew law enforcement would be out in the area that night enforcing alcohol-related crimes, effectively deterring parties and gas. At 329, the White Elantra makes its first pass in front of the victim's residence and travels around the neighboring apartment complex to pull behind the victim's residence. In our opinion, this is to get a full view of all sides of the house. The Linda Lane footage, if real, shows the car drive around the neighboring apartment complex at approximately 3.30 a.m. The car would go around two more times in the same pattern, going around the neighbor the neighboring apartment complex at 3.39 and 3.56 a.m. According to the PCA, Xana received a DoorDash order at 4 a.m., which means she would have had the food in her possession. 
Usually by the time the recipient of the order is notified that their food is up front, the DoorDasher has left the resident. The DoorDashers typically don't hang around after dropping off a meal. They're off to the next one. And, you know, being it's four in the morning, they're probably off to bed. Said so we expect that the DoorDasher to be at the residence between 3.58 a.m. and 4 a.m. and possibly never seen by Koberger. Question remains, why did Koberger drive around so much? The location of the house can be tricky. The address is King Road, however, the front of the residence face Queen Road. So understandably, it can be confusing. According to the ABC podcast, Zana's friend stated that Zana ordering DoorDash at all hours of the night wasn't uncommon. They described it as a Zana move. Since DoorDash sends different drivers at random, we think that Zana would have known it was tricky to find their residence and had a light on outside or inside the house to alert the DoorDasher of their location. At 4 a.m. when Zana receives her order, there would be no need for that light to be on anymore, and we suspect that she turned off that light or whatever indicator was on to indicate to the DoorDash person that this was the location for the drop. Goldberger passes for a fourth time at 4.05 a.m., but at this time, his driving becomes erratic. We think that Xana receives the DoorDash order and turns off whatever indicator that she had on for the DoorDasher at 4 o'clock. Happens to be between Koberger's 3.56 a.m. and 4.04 a.m. pass around. We believe Koberger may have saw a light at 3.56 on and then off at 4.05 a.m. and had no idea DoorDash delivery was made. At this point, things get real for Mr. Koberger. Instead of driving around the neighboring apartment as he had done the previous passbys, he does a turnaround in front of apartment number 52. During this turnaround, the vehicle stops and pauses for approximately 11 seconds. We wonder what he was asking himself or questioning himself or doing during those 11 seconds. PCA, he goes back towards the residence on Queen Road. As he approaches the victim's house, he attempts to either park or do a turnaround unsuccessfully. He then drives forward and does a three-point turnaround at the Queen Road and King Road intersection and heads back towards the victim's house and neighboring apartment. His driving has changed, as I mentioned. He appears to be nervous. He's already making mistakes. There is a difference between practice and play, right? Preparation and doing the crime. He did a lot of things right. And if he had not left that knife sheath, I think he'd still be uh, a free man today as emotions are going through through him as well during this time. And I don't find it at all uncommon for Brian Koberger to have left back something behind, something as important as a knife sheath. In fact, we mentioned Dennis Rader, BTK, earlier in this program. At one of his scenes, he left his gun behind. He had to go back and retrieve it and was able to do so before police were uh, known of the crime that he had committed. I wanted to point that out. There is seen on Linda Lane footage for the last time heading towards the rear victim's residence at 4.07 a.m. That series of turns, you know, going in front of apartment 52, turning around, trying to park in front of the victim's residence, doing the three-point turn at, uh, at the King Queen Road intersection, and then coming back around and getting in view of the Linda Lane footage only took about a minute and 28 seconds to do. So a complete drive around from the entering from King Road, passing in front of the victim's residence and circling around the neighborhood park apartment complex and leave the area uh, would take less than a minute to do so. So when I mentioned earlier that if he or if the door driver, DoorDash driver dropped off food at 3.58 or 4 a.m., they would have been gone before 4.02, before the 4.05 mark where Koberger pulls in for the last time. So given all that time frame, we, we suspect that Koberger parks at the rear end of the residence at approximately 4.08 a.m. 
suspect, the killer exited his vehicle with a kit in hand. Inside the kit was a change of clothes and shoes. We suspect Koberger left these items outside of his car where he could easily access them and quickly do a change of clothing and shoes. We think he had on coveralls, which didn't allow him to put on a belt and properly wear the knife sheath. Instead, he took it in with him in his hand. We suspect that he used van slip on shoes because they were easy to put on and off and are one of the most common shoes to find amongst college age individuals. Very common shoes. Anybody could be wearing them. Doesn't typically tie back to Koberger. In my opinion, this is why he would have worn those. Koberger entered the residence through the rear sliding glass door. We think that that door was possibly left open throughout the entire time of the crime. And the reason being is we think he wanted to touch things as little as possible. If his goal is to get away with this crime, he's not going to be touching things multiple times. You know, each time he touches something is a possibility that he's leaving DNA or trace evidence behind. Early press conference, Chief Fry stated the rear door was still open when officers arrived. Stickler. 100% sure if the door was unlocked, there was no damage to anything and the door was still open um, when we got there. The door was still open when they got there. The, the fact that he said still open leads me to believe that police suspect that the rear glass door uh, remained open the entire time. We thought there was a possible indicator for the door dasher being Xana on the second floor that there could have been a light on, right? What if that light or indicator was on the second floor? If Koberger went into this house after the lights turned off and only assumed that people went to sleep, I would assume that Koberger would have gone to the third floor because he thought that the occupants on the second floor had just gone to sleep and wouldn't be in a deep sleep yet. As Koberger made his way towards the stairs, we think he may have mistaken Dylan's bedroom for a closet door based on its location and in the hallway leading up towards the stairs and is directly in front of the entrance to the kitchen see from this Kula virtual tour of the 1122 King Road residence from the back glass door if Koberger entered this way and we have to remember that it was dark in this direction towards the hallway and saw this door here right this door is very close to the stairway is directly in front of the uh, kitchen is it possible that Koberger thought that this was a closet door. In fact, we've had a guest on the show that has been inside that house and he stated himself he wasn't aware that Dylan's door was a bedroom for the longest time and assumed it was a closet. Have you yourself been inside that house? Yeah, yeah, I have quite a few times. Okay. Now, so you're familiar with the layout of the house? Yeah, yeah, for the most part. Um, you know, I mean, the majority of the time we just hung out in the common areas, but I remember roughly where bedrooms are. Yeah, I remember where all the bedrooms are, like the bathrooms, the laundry room. Um, yeah. Would it be difficult for somebody to navigate through that house if they weren't familiar with that house, given the size of it or maybe the items that they may have? Yeah, because yeah, it's kind of a weird build on the inside. Like on the outside, it looks kind of funky, but on the inside, too, you definitely can tell. Um, they kind of like did what they could to like squeeze a bunch of like rooms in there and maximize on the space of the place. So like there's like whenever you walk in um, on the main floor and you open up like that front door, you're just you just see like a bunch of doors all around you. And then there's a staircase. So like you pretty much have to kind of like guess on which door is the bathroom. And even I mean, even whenever um, whenever, you know, you get told where the bathroom is, it's a good chance you like fuck up on which door it is. Um, so um, but, like, some of the doors, they kind of look like they're like closets or bathrooms and they're bedrooms, you know, so it's kind of 
So that, that was a question that I had. Dylan's bedroom door was right there at the uh, where the staircase is. I'm fairly positive uh, many people pass by that bedroom door if they're going from the common areas uh, just because they have to go from the kitchen to the, that second floor living room and pass it. Would you have thought that that was also a closet door or was that obviously a bedroom door? Yeah, for a while I did not know that that was a bedroom. Gotcha. Okay. Like I know a lot of us didn't, didn't actually know that that house helped sick people for the longest time because a lot of the bedrooms you can't tell are bedrooms. And are you are you talking about the one that's um on the same floor that's like adjacent to like it's on the wall that's next to the living room? Well, that floor. one are you talking about all? Because there's that's where the two are on the middle floor. I'm talking about the one that's closest to the kitchen near the staircase going up. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, that one. If we're talking about the right one, that one especially. Even a person that was in that house, maybe um, only for parties and things of that nature, but in that house on multiple occasions for the longest time, thought that that specific door was a closet. If what we mentioned was true, that Brian Cooper left a sliding grass door because he did not want to touch it or, or continue to touch it and you know possibly leave his DNA or, t or transfer DNA behind, wouldn't you also suspect that Brian Koberger would not touch a door that he thought was a closet? I do. I think that's the reason why Dylan Mortensen's life was spared. What you're going to say, if he stalked him, he would have known Dylan's door wasn't a closet. But what we do know is that he's been in the area 12 different occasions between July and November, which averages out to less than two and a half times per month. Plus, at the time of the murders, there wasn't a clear layout of the house available, such as the one that I showed you. It was only Zillow and other sites that had pictures of the house, and those pictures were out of order and hard to tell where some of the bedrooms were. We also have to remember it was dark that night. I believe that Koberger goes up the stairs and enters Maddie's bedroom where he sees Maddie and Kaylee sleeping. Koberger then takes his knife out of the sheath and places the sheath on the bed and begins his attack. During the attack, he forgets he brought the sheath with him. You know, there's a lot of adrenaline, a lot of things that are going on. I think it's quite possible, like I mentioned before, BTK forgot his gun out of place. Uh, we suspect the killer targeted the areas of the victims, which would prevent screaming, which is why there's no screaming heard on any of the audio. Uh, the killer then leaves Maddie's room. We suspect that Xana may have heard something or felt the draft from the open glass door and got up to check what was going on. Saw that the rear sliding glass door was open and stated out loud, I think someone is here, as the PCA states. She then turns around to head back to her bedroom and go wake up Ethan, who we believe is still asleep at this time, in Xana's room. We think that Koberger may have heard Xana say she thought someone was in, you know, in the house. And as she walked back to her bedroom down the hallway, we think Koberger came up from behind and surprised Anna as she entered her bedroom. He quickly struck Anna somewhere that may have only temporarily incapacitated her, creating a thud noise. He immediately focused his attack on Ethan, who is probably waking up, but finding himself laying down with a Koberger armed with a large knife over him, putting Ethan at a severe disadvantage. We think at a certain point, Anna begins to wake up. Koberger noticed and goes back and finishes attack, leaving defensive wounds on Xana. I think Koberger was necessarily done at that point. We suspect Dylan, after hearing noises and assuming it's common party noises, yells out to be quiet. I think that Koberger was focused on what he was doing and may have heard the yell by Dylan, but not understand what was said. Plus, Koberger may not have known where he came from. There was a first floor Koberger had not yet gone to. Understanding how fast police would get there, Koberger quickly left, possibly in a panic, forgetting about the sheath upstairs, and left Xana's room as he headed towards the kitchen to leave. As he's leaving, he sees what he may have thought was a closet door open to see it wasn't a closet, and assumes that that person that opened the door, Dylan, called 911. And so Koberger spares Dylan's life due to believing he had limited time to get out of the area. Koberger exits and goes to his vehicle where he has a change of clothing 
and changes his clothes and shoes, places the items that he used during the crime in an outdoor tough trash bag, put the bag in his car, probably in his trunk, and left at a high rate of speed. Now, the reasons why I believe that Dylan didn't call 911 at that time are probably because she did assume that it was party goers. She may have yelled out, be quiet. And then after she yelled out, be quiet, somebody's leaving, right? Now, the big problem with that is that person leaving is wearing a mask. And I don't think that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's COVID-19, yada, yada, yada. People wear masks. But, you know, university students, in fact, had a sticker created um, as part of the sticker gate in protest against the mask for Moscow. So I don't think that that was a situation. I think maybe after she saw the person in the mask, things may have gotten and thought that maybe perhaps something more nefarious was happening and started to text people at that time, including her um, other roommate, Bethany Funk, and perhaps maybe even people outside of the house. In my opinion, if she's going to text people inside of the house after hearing some things and seeing some stuff, I wouldn't be surprised if she contacted other folks. Now, being that it's 4.30 in the morning, I highly doubt that many of those folks that she contacted would have been awake. But I do believe that as they woke up and seen these messages, and that's a possibility or reasoning behind why there was a rumor about things that were going on prior to the discovery of the bodies. And as far as why it took eight hours for either Dylan or Bethany to make contact with someone and, you know, eventually the police being called and not by them, by the way, is a puzzling one. In my opinion, there's not very many logical explanations for that. Me and the guys, me and the guys have spoke about it. And I think we've come up with our best theory, but, you know, without having talking to Dylan or Bethany or they themselves not going to mainstream media or speaking with a magazine or an article of some kind or coming out on a podcast and explaining themselves, it leads to a lot of speculation and a lot of question. But the theory that we have that possibly could make sense is perhaps she did think that they were party goers and she did yell out. And when Brian Coburg allegedly walks past her and she's opening the door and she's seeing a masked guy walking out, starts thinking maybe those other noises that she was hearing could have been more nefarious. You know, I think maybe she panicked. She contacted uh, Bethany. Maybe Bethany was also worried. We have no idea what was said there. What we do know is that per my interview with uh, Christy Gonzalez, she had, she had confirmed what news nation had stated that it was Ethan's best friend who had discovered the bees and called 911. What she also told me was that when he arrived, that he couldn't get through the door because it was. That leads me to believe that the surviving roommates never saw the extent of the injuries. Is it possible that Dylan and Bethany texted other people saying, you know, the victims here aren't responding to our text messages and just in fear do not want to leave their room? I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We probably won't know until trial when we finally hear what their side of the story is. Accidentally, 4.20 a.m., a white Elantra is seen traveling at a high rate of speed on surveillance cameras on Willington Drive. The PCA states that they believe Koberger exited the neighborhood on Palouse River Drive because there is a direct path to Pullman from, from Palouse River that would only take 15 to 20 minutes to arrive back in Pullman. We wondered why investigators would believe he went directly to Pullman in the PCA. We know his phone comes on south of Pullman on Highway 95 after the murders, and we're knowing that he is going south and does this weird, unorthodox trip back to Pullman. Why would he do that? 
Or why would that be in the PCA? We believe it's to show that Koberger had extensive knowledge in how he would have been investigated. We think it's in there to show what investigators thought and what they would have done as an indication that they would have looked at the cameras entering Pullman shortly after the murders to see if a white Elantra would be seen pulling into the town from the direction of Moscow. Instead, like I mentioned, Koberger takes an unorthodox trip to Pullman that lasted over an hour to elude that investigation. Now, this trip starts off on that back road from Palouse River. However, there is a turn and you can circle around and go to Highway 95 south of Moscow. Now, I think that's done for a couple of reasons. One, there is a camera located on 95 and Palouse River Drive that he would have had to have driven. And given the fact that the probable cause affidavit initially stated that they believe that he may have gone back to Pullman tells me that he did not show up on that camera. So he must have gone a different route. There is a route that is available that will take a person from that back road around to I-95, avoid all security cameras. As we can see from this map, this is the uh, the road that is going. This is Palouse River Drive. This is the road that has um, a way back to Pullman, Washington uh, without any security cameras. Uh, he would have to have traveled this yellow line and then continued on this red one to Busby. And then he would be just south of Pullman. However, he made a left, in my opinion, here at this intersection instead of continuing forward and then circled back around, which brought him up in front of uh, or on I-95 south of south of uh, Moscow, Idaho. This is the uh, the cameras that I believe he would have been picked up had he gone this direction and just traveled south. Remember, there was a lot of time missing. He is seen at 4.20 a.m., leaving at a high rate of speed on Walenta Drive, and he isn't his phone doesn't come back on until he's near Blaine, Idaho, uh, on 95 uh, at 48. So there's a 28-minute gap there. Had he drove directly there, he would have gotten there in less than 5 to 10 minutes. Even if he would have taken this weird back road, it would have only taken an extra two to three minutes. There is still a significant amount of time. But during this unorthodox trip back to Pullman is where we believe that Koberger may have dropped the bag containing all the evidence and pre-planned um, tools in a secure hidden location. So Koberger takes this unorthodox trip, takes him a while, and he arrives at his home at approximately 540 a.m. And to his surprise, there's no news of the incident. Now, he understands he cannot search for the crimes on his divide in case the murders haven't been reported yet. And Koberger doesn't have his planning tools anymore to go back to a uh, university or somewhere that supplies free Wi-Fi to check if there's any news on the Idaho Forest Lanes. So at 9 a.m., he decides to go back to the King Road residence to, to see that there's no movement. Surprised, he returns home at and returns by 9.32 a.m. Later on in the day, Koberger goes to Clarkston, Washington, and is seen on camera shopping and grabbing coffee at approximately 12.45 p.m. Clarkston, Washington from Pullman is about an hour or so away, so he would have left about 15 minutes prior to the bodies being reported and 911 being called. However, as he's returning back to Pullman, Koberger's phone goes off the network again from approximately 5.36 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. This is consistent with, phone, with Koberger's phone being in the area that he traveled in the hours immediately following the suspected time of the homicides occurred. In my opinion, I think he went to go retrieve the evidence and maybe perhaps, I don't know, maybe he wanted to take it to a final resting spot, a little bit more uh, secure. Take a look at the uh, the map here to the probable cause affidavit. 
while Koberger is in Johnson, Idaho, his phone goes off and it was in the area in which um, traveled to in the hours following immediately the suspect that the homicides occurred. This, these red roads here, Idaho, there's a road right here that turns off that would have put him back in an area where he may have dis disclosed uh, some items. He retrieved the bag, the knife, and the clothes and took them all to their final hidden location. Based on the timeline of events, Koberger would have been awake for a very long time. In my opinion, it's my opinion and speculation, I wonder if he was on something to aid him in staying awake. Koberger recently waving his over a speedy trial. It'll be a while before we get the answers to the questions that remain. Quilt. It's a uh, it's a rescue themed quilt. It's in benefit of my mine and my wife's Frenchie, who ended up losing the ability to move his rear legs. Uh, he went through a very costly and you know not guaranteed surgery, and thankfully he's about eighty percent today, and he's able to walk. He's still working at it. Um, we still have a lot of rehabilitation to go through, which is why we're doing the benefit raffle. Please hit that subscribe, hit that like button. Let me know in the comment section what you think about the theory. Is there any holes? Let me know. With that being said, peace.